Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sea Breeze podcast, where we contemplate the Christian classics. I'm your host, Eric, still flying solo here on the podcast. Uh, We've been going through G.K. Chesterton lately. I hope you've been enjoying it. Um, We've been reading Orthodoxy. And uh, just as a reminder, this podcast is all about reading old authors, uh, because we think that there's a lot of of treasures to be mined from the past and what people were thinking about long ago. They could see blind spots that we can't see today. And so, yeah, all we do in this podcast is we read old Christian literature and we talk about it. So I hope you've enjoyed it. If you're still on this episode, then that means you must really enjoy it. Um, no cold open today. I don't know. I have no excuse. I just couldn't think of a good one. So I guess we'll just hop right in. So This will be the last episode on G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Um, I've really enjoyed it. It's a really fun, it was a really fun book to read. Um, It's pretty short. Uh, I definitely recommend, um, well, obviously Life Together was pretty accessible. I'd say this is a very accessible accessible book, uh, unlike maybe City of God. So it's very fun, very pithy, and very very prescient. So um, yeah, let's hop right in. So we'll talk about the last three chapters uh, today and sort of close out the book. All right, so in chapter seven, Chesterton, he kind of lays out these these three things that he kind of, I don't know, needs an answer to or wants to see sort of in any sort of philosophy or um, kind of doctrine about life. And, and so as we've really been tracing in this book, Chesterton had certain things that he was looking for in life or certain maybe realizations or beliefs about how the world worked and and he found that christianity lined up with them on every single case and that's really what brought him to christianity so this book has been less about uh a a typical apologetics book on christianity and more about his own personal journey so in this chapter he like i said he lays out three things that he really wanted to see in some sort of doctrine and how christianity met each of them so the, the first thing that he talks about in this chapter is that any sort of philosophy or, or goal or um, yeah, understanding of the world, it needs to have a fixed ideal. So it's okay to change how you might pursue an idea or a goal, but the end goal has to be fixed. And, um, and kind of, I guess, the spoiler alert is that, that Christianity, yes, that, that this had this, that the as Christians, we believe that that God fixed realities, um, I mean, in himself, but even really the, the realities were fixed before the world began. And so b- before we get to kind of Christianity's answer that he found, he talks about a lot of the problems with progressives and sort of the modern thinking of the time. And I think this is um, maybe a misconception about what conservatism is and that conservatism it kind of gets a bad rap as you know stuck in the past or wanting to relive the glory days and and i think a better like conservatives are and should be willing to change their tactics but they do not we will not change the goal that we're working after and and so chesterton points out that in his time this was the real problem with the progressives of his day is that they kept changing their goal um and so if you're changing your goal if you're changing your yardstick that's going to lead to a lot of problems and and i think that that's really i think pretty evident like at least in the american american political system right now is that 
it's not like conservative and liberals are pursuing the same goal just with different means you know liberals say let's tax a little more conservatives say let's tax a little less but we're, we all want the same goal i don't think that's the case it just doesn't seem like that it seems like the the two political factions are are pursuing totally different goals uh at least in the u.s and and chesterton totally had kind of was seeing the same problem back then and the issue isn't just different goals but that the goals keep changing for the liberals or for the progressives and one of the ways that he kind of observes this is that the the modern progressives of his day were were really like too vague and and they didn't actually define anything they would use all these big words and um you know this fancy speak but but they weren't actually saying anything of content they were kind of just hiding behind these big words and so he had a really uh kind of funny quote I want to read about this let's see where does he say this uh oh yeah so here we go so he says other vague modern people take refuge in material metaphors in fact this is the chief mark of vague modern people not daring to define their doctrine of what is good they use physical figures of speech without stint or shame and what is worst of all seem to think these cheap analogies are exquisitely spiritual and superior to the old morality thus they think it intellectual to talk about things being high it is at least the reverse of intellectual it is a mere phrase from a steeple or a weathercock tommy was a good boy is a pure philosophical statement worthy of plato or aquinas tommy lived the higher life is a gross metaphor from a 10-foot rule and so he's talking about how the the moderns and the kind of liberals of his time they were really trying to just use this fancy words like oh pursuing the higher life or the higher good and and i think we would all say we still see this kind of language now probably on both sides but that oh let's just pursue the higher purposes in life and you're not really saying anything if you say that you're not making any sort of <laughs> claim about reality it, it's kind of a meaningless phrase uh in many ways and as opposed to just saying Tommy was a good boy, like a, a statement that simple, it's clear what you mean, right? There's no hiding behind it. There's no um, dancing around like that means only one thing. And it's, and it's pretty clear. And I think he, he this kind of leads into his next sort of, I'd say, critique or um, issue with the progressives of the day and how they kept changing their ideal. And and that was that it's actually the people in power who are doing certain things to keep themselves in power, which is probably a tale as old as time. But so the example he gives is that basically the, the people in power get everyone to start contemplating what freedom really means. What does it truly mean to be free and, and what is freedom and, and, and all these things. And in doing that, by getting people thinking about that, they're not actually trying to be free. <laughs> they're, they're too busy. They're, they're too, you know, they're spending their time contemplating what freedom is as opposed to trying to be free. And, and this works out great for the people in power because no one's then actually trying to change the rule or change what's actually happening. And again, I fear that this is a pretty common thing in America these days too, is that, you know, th this is kind of like the classic debate now. It's like, you know, what does it mean to be, a racist and what does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be a woman and all, and all these things and people end up just talking about these things so much that no one actually does anything <laughs> and and like i said this really works this works great for the people who are in power or the kind of traditional ruling class if you will 
because then no one's actually trying to, to change anything. They're just kind of too busy talking about what what the meaning of these words in a sense. And, and so I think there's really two do work together. And, and he has this kind of piercing quote, I would say, on what like progressivism should be, what pro progress should be, and unfortunately what it actually is. And so here's what Chesterton says. He says, now here comes in the whole collapse and huge blunder of our age. We have mixed up two different things, two opposite things. Progress should mean that we are always changing the world to suit the vision. So we have some fixed vision and we're trying to change the world. So progress should mean that we are trying to, that we are always changing the world to suit the vision. Progress does mean just now. So this is what it does mean as opposed to what it should mean. Progress does mean just now that we are always changing the vision. It should mean that we are slow but sure in bringing justice and mercy among men. It does mean that we are very swift in doubting the desirability of justice and mercy. A wild page from any Prussian sophist makes men doubt it. Progress should mean that we are always walking towards the new Jerusalem. It does mean that the new Jerusalem is always walking away from us. We are not altering the real to suit the ideal. We are altering the ideal. It is easier. I think this the the quote kind of speaks for itself but but he's saying like yes if we, if we literally this kind of talks harkens back to what he's talking about with love like if we really have a vision and an ideal that we love that we will always be you know actually changing things and always seeking to improve and, and really change the world to fit this vision better but he says instead what has happened is the easier thing to do that's a lot of work if you want to see a change in your city or your town or your family or in yourself that takes a lot of work to do that and so what he's saying is it's actually just easier to well let's just tweak the vision and that will be a lot easier and you know we really won't have to do anything it won't take much work and so what has happened is people have had been making quote progress on the vision as opposed to the means of achieving that vision and 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 this is really a huge problem i think we could i think it's clear why this is a problem and like i said he he found that in christianity the 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 vision of what we're working for is fixed god has promised what the future looks like that he will return and redeem all things and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth so he's fixed that he's fixed the the truths of the world he's fixed the morality of the world and so each age is going to have different ways that it tries to pursue those and we're always going to be you know changing our our neighborhoods and, and our families to to try to reach that goal but we know what the end is we have that fixed and, and that really appealed to chesterton so the second thing that he wanted in his kind of ideal philosophy so the first again was a fixed ideal the second thing he wanted was that we we need to basically be pursuing beauty and that he wants this beauty to have an artist and so he, he's going to talk a little bit here about beauty and, and he talks about how he thinks that this this ideal of perfection that that we should be chasing it, it needs to be like a picture it needs to be composite and, and three-dimensional and and, and multi-layered if you will and not just flat and he, he wants something that's so beautiful that it requires an artist to, to make it beautiful and to push it forward not merely some impersonal force that that we should be moving towards this beauty and this complexity and so this is, I think we can see how this is in contrast to the people of his day and the people still today that, uh, you know, if we think about, uh, you know, capital E evolution as a, just a way to explain the entire world or materialism, these are very impersonal forces. Um, and, 
and and he's saying i want something so beautiful i want to be pursuing something so beautiful that it would require an artist it it it, it reminds me of uh it's something i've thought about is that whenever i you know see something beautiful in nature or an animal or or watch some you know cool nature documentary to me the the insinuation that this was merely you know random mutations over millions and millions of years is insulting to our god it's insulting to our creator that there are so many species that they are so beautiful that they are so intricate that they are so different it's insulting to say oh no this was just random occurrences over years and and he's saying yeah i want something so beautiful that when you look at it you know this could not have been an impersonal force this was an artist who was composing it and of course christianity he gave him the answer for this one too right the christians we know who the artist is we know that this world is beautiful this world is uh, a masterpiece in a lot of ways and that it was not merely some impersonal force but it was a a relational creator a relational god who made it this way and and really left his mark and put his beauty onto this world and so that answered you know chesterton's second point that there has to be beauty and there has to be an artist the third thing that he the third and final thing that he was kind of talking about in this section on sort of what he wanted from, um, you know, a theory of life or of discipline. It's a little hard to, he had a kind of hard time explaining it, but basically he talks about um, that this sense of progress needs to be self-aware. So if we're ever pursuing something, there's of course always a chance that we're going to get off track. And so he says, whatever progress we're pursuing, it needs to be aware of that that we can fall off track and it, and it kind of needs to have a way to correct that. Um, and so I want to start with an interesting quote, um, if I can find it. Let's see. So he he's going to talk about how... Oh, yeah, yeah. So I thought this was very interesting. Okay, so, um, so here he is talking about how, how progress needs to be self-aware. Uh, okay. Just recently, some of us have seen, not slowly, but with a start, that they are obviously nothing of the kind. They are, by the nature of the case, the hobbies of a few rich men. We have not any need to rebel against antiquity. We have to rebel against novelty. It is the new rulers, the capitalist or the editor, who really hold up the modern world. There is no fear that a modern king will attempt to override the Constitution. It is more likely that he will ignore the Constitution and work behind its back. He will take no advantage of his kingly power. It is more likely that he will take advantage of his kingly powerlessness, of the fact that he is free from criticism and publicity. For the king is the most private person of our time. It will not be necessary, necessary for anyone to fight against the proposal of a censorship of the press. We do not need a censorship of the press. We have a censorship by the press. So he's saying that the dangers of of progress are not really what you think like he's saying you don't need to worry about a king who's going to try to start rewriting the constitution the, the kind of king that would do that is not going to rewrite the constitution they're just going to ignore their constitution and in the same way that i thought the the quote about the press i thought was really crazy because this is something that, that's really been coming to the forefront a lot in america really ever since covid was just like mm, like pretty extreme media bias and and censoring and canceling and uh, yeah just around the election and covid and you know no matter where you stand i think it's clear that you know the that talks about misinformation and what that is 
I think it's clear, again, no matter which side of the aisle you're on, that that there's some kind of wild stuff going on with the press in America. And so with this line that he says, we don't need a censorship of the press. We have a censorship by the press. That the press, the, the media, is actually the one doing the censoring. And when I just read that, I was like, oh my gosh, this, this was 100 years ago and, and we have the same, the same issues today. So, like I said, he... He says, okay, any sense of progress, it needs to be self-aware. It needs to always be on the lookout for how it might be going astray. And and, and Christianity, I think, just really has such a clear understanding of this and why this is the case and an amazing answer to it that just gives a really realistic view of the world. So Christianity, we believe in the fallenness of the world and in the fallenness of man, which means that men have wicked hearts, that the human heart is inherently wicked. And so men, are, we're going to be not just men, meaning males, but men like the species. That man is is prone to backsliding. It's prone to, to fallenness, to wickedness. That, that when these things happen, it shouldn't surprise us. And that there needs to be guardrails in place to protect against these realities. And and like I said, Christianity, it has this understanding, this sense of, of the true nature of man. That the the modern sentiment seems to be you know i think most people are good i think i'm generally a good person i think there's literally a luke bryan song called most people are good so that that's kind of the general sentiment right most people are like ah generally good and then there's a few bad apples but as christianity we have it completely flipped and and the problem is if you think that most people are generally good and then you see evil happening it just doesn't make sense why are people you know invading other countries unprovoked why are people doing terrible things if you think most people are good, you don't have a way to categorize that. You don't have a way to understand that. Christianity, we understand why that. It hurts us and we don't we don't get it in a sense, but we know why. We know why people act in an evil way. And yeah, and I think this is a this is something about Christianity I think is a real strong suit that it just it's it's very realistic. It understands the world and and the way the world operates, it just makes sense that that would be the case. And, and he says one of the other problems that he finds, um, if you're not being self-aware, is that you just end up kind of trusting the rich because they're rich. And I think that this is uh, kind of still the case today. I mean, think about people like Elon Musk or Bill Gates. For, for whatever reason, we just trust them. Oh, yeah, they're very smart. They're very successful. So they must know about, you know, X, Y, Z which really they have no, no reason to know about. And we, in, in many ways, they're not more or less trustworthy than anyone else. But the, the, the worldly kind of perspective on is, oh yeah, they're rich, they're successful, they're more trustworthy. And, and he kind of has this interesting pivot on it. In, and he says that democracy, as opposed to kind of a kingly rule, democracy is very Christian because he says it seeks the opinion of the lowest man who would otherwise be too modest to offer it. So in a, right, in a democracy, the vote of a, a rich person counts just the same as the vote of a poor person. It's very um, equalizing. It's very egalitarian. It's saying that just because you're rich doesn't mean your opinion matters more than someone who's poor. And he, he's actually saying someone who is a lower man w- would probably be too modest to offer their opinion. But, but democracy seeks that out, just as Christians should. As Christians, we know that the rich person, the poor person, everyone is just as fallen. Everyone is just as much in need of forgiveness through Christ. Um and and I think that's kind of a, a humbling. It kind of levels the playing field in many ways. So he, he realized progress must have this. He finds Christianity, which has a great way to understand this. Is yes, there are many ways uh, people go astray, and that's kind of the default of the human heart. 
So he had these three things in mind um, that there needs to be a fixed ideal. We must be pursuing beauty with an artist and that progress must be self-aware. And Christianity gave like, a really great answer to each of them. So that's for chapter seven. In, in chapter eight, he <laughs> he has a pretty controversial hot take, but he he's gonna argue and show why liberal theology in the church, which usually the kind of argument or is like, oh yeah, liberal theology it leads to um, you know loosening change and more freedom and more prosperity for people, but he says no, liberal theology actually leads to oppression. So he's gonna get into that that liberal theology in the church leads to oppression. And and first, uh, I think this is this will come up a little bit later, but he starts with this kind of funny point that. Um, it's similar to the point about we use really vague concepts that don't actually mean anything. He says we also hide behind big words when we don't really know what we're saying. And it's actually very lazy to use big words. And he, as a point, he kind of, he gives an example of a sentence that's using all these big words. And then he gives an example of a sentence using only one syllable words. He says, try making a sentence with only one syllable words. It's definitely difficult. And it, you have to be much more clear and there's not gonna be any ambiguity in what you're saying and i think we totally see this today that, that yeah there's so many big words that people kind of toss around probably without even knowing what they mean i mean think about all the labels that are uh you know kind of used in even on both sides you know whether it's calling someone uh, a racist whether it's calling someone um you know, like a sheep or whatever. They, we, we people throw around words that, that they've really lost all meaning. They've been stripped of all meaning. Or it's just another big word that people don't really know what they mean, but it's just kind of thrown around. And and the other issue I see related to this is that it just kind of leads to people parroting talking points on the right and the left. I think that um, th this is an issue for both sides of the aisle, but whatever news channel you watch, whatever Twitter people you follow, you... You hear what they say and you just repeat it back without really maybe thinking clearly about what they're saying. So he starts with that and then he gets into how liberal theology leads to all these problems. And so I'll just give one example of how he talks about this. So he says one of the kind of, I'd say, hallmarks of liberal theology is that it diminishes miracles. So there's an, a big focus on materialism and a lot of these miracles we can kind of explain away in some you know, naturalist way. So, so liberal theology is always diminishing miracles. And he says, he's going to basically go into how kind of oppressive this is. So first he says, so the man of the 19th century did not disbelieve in the resurrection because his liberal theology allowed him to doubt it. He disbelieved in it because his sincere materialism did not allow him to believe in it. So he's kind of hitting on this this paradox, this tension that, that liberal theology, it, it sounds so freeing and so unrestricted, and yet people were so restricted by their belief in materialism that they couldn't believe in the resurrection. He quotes uh, Tennyson with a famous quote that he says, there was faith in their honest doubts, meaning that these people had so much faith in their materialism that they disbelieved in miracles. I think that's a... Uh, it's kind of like a classic Christian apologetics point that there's th that everyone is really believing in something. Everyone is kind of trusting in something. And so to say, oh, you know, I don't have faith. I just trust science or yada, yada, yada. 
no, like you're in a sense, you're having faith in science. He's saying you, you have faith in materialism, that there's nothing immaterial in this world. And that's why you're disbelieving in miracles. So liberal theology here doesn't lead to more freedom. It actually leads to less freedom. There, So there's nothing, it, it's it's so contrary to what it's arguing for. And it, it, it turns out to be very oppressive. And another way he shows this is, if liberal theology was really providing what it promised and that there was more freedom, then it should lead to some people basically believing in too many miracles. Like they think, oh, let's, you know, let's add a bunch of miracles and, and, and believe in too many and let's take it to that extreme. So that would be the extreme, maybe one way that there's too many miracles. And some people would go the other way and say, okay, no, there's not really that many miracles. We can kind of explain away some of these. So true liberal theology would lead to that. Some people on one extreme, some people on the other extreme. But in fact, it's only led to, liberal theology has only led to people disbelieving in miracles. And and in this way, it's really kind of a quite oppressive uh, theology, which I think is kind of kind of piercing, kind of kind of sharp, um, and in that it's 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 promising one thing, and it it's not just not delivering on that promise of freedom and lack of oppression, but it's it's providing the exact opposite that this supposedly freeing theology is actually leading to oppression. Um, and, and I'll finish this part on this quote that, that he has. So Chesterton says, This, as I say, is the lightest and most evident case. The assumption that there is something in the doubt of miracles akin to liberality or reform is literally the opposite of the truth. If a man cannot believe in miracles, there is an end to the, there is an end of the matter. He is not particularly liberal, but he is perfectly honorable and logical, which are much better things. But if he can believe in miracles, he is certainly the more liberal for doing so. Because they mean, first, the freedom of the soul, and secondly, it's control over the tyranny of circumstance. So that line where he says, the assumption that there is something in the doubt of miracles akin to liberality or reform is literally the opposite of the truth. <laughs> literally the opposite of the truth. There is nothing liberal. There is nothing progressive about doubting miracles. Actually, it's quite the contrary. The, the other main point that he has from chapter 8 is addressing this point where kind of people think that all, all religions are, are really the same. You know, they're, they're just kind of different paths leading to the same God. And, and he points out something very interesting that, yeah, there's actually some things about religions that are really similar. For example, almost every religion has priests who make some sort of offering to the gods. They all have rituals that there are these certain similarities between uh, different religions, but the teachings are so fundamentally different. And it, this is, I think, pretty frustrating for, for Christians or for anyone. It's like, to, to say that all these religions are teaching similar things is, is just not true if you kind of get into it. And so he kind of, uh, <laughs> he, he has this sort of a savage dismantalization of this where someone was was arguing that Christ and Buddha were really similar. And he, he read this book basically on someone who was explaining how Christ and Buddha were so similar. And, and I'll just read how he responds to this. So he, he's responding to the reasons that Christ and Buddha are similar. So the reasons were of two kind. Resemblance that meant nothing because they were common to all humanity. 
and resemblances which were not resemblances at all. The author solemnly explained that the two creeds, Christianity and Buddhism, were alike in things in which all creeds are alike, or else he described them as alike in some point in which they are quite obviously different. Thus, as a case of the first class, he said that both Christ and Buddha were called by the divine voice coming out of the sky, as if you would expect the divine voice to come out of the coal cellar. Or again, it was gravely urged that these two eastern teachers, by a singular coincidence, both had to do with the washing of feet. You might as well say that it was a remarkable coincidence that they both had feet to wash. Uh, and so then he kind of goes on. I just, I thought that was so funny that, that so, so, someone's like, yeah, you know, Christ and Buddha, they're very similar. They both were called by God from the sky. And he's like, well, where did you expect God to call him from? You know, the coal cellar. So this, these, these similarities, that, that's just kind of ridiculous. Like that's every single creed or every single God talks from the sky. That doesn't mean anything about their similarities. And, and then he goes to talk on, or, or goes on to talk about some, things that he says are similarities that just really aren't and and he then gets into some really beautiful just points of christianity that that are so different from other religions that that no religion really comes close to that that our god actually revolted against god that that our god abandoned god at the cross and at the garden that there, there's no other religion where where god gave up himself to love his people, where God abandoned himself, where God took on a worse circumstance than than his people. And and I was just reflecting about this, um, I don't know, maybe it was a few weeks ago, but but if I really am and was guilty in God's eyes, and God really did come down to to die and suffer, you know, a horrible death in my place and really did rise again, then that anything he asks. I will do. I want to do. I want to follow that man. I want to follow that God who who gave himself up for me. And 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 no other religion has that. No other religion comes close to that kind of God, to that kind of love. So, that's chapter 8. Uh he's he's dismissing these these ideas of liberal theology and oh yes, all religions are kind of similar and he he's really showing that they're that the, that these ideas are kind of bankrupt. So lastly, chapter nine, polishing off the rest of the book, he he basically answers kind of a, I'd say a really standard question too, a classic question that you could have after doing this. He says, all right, maybe I'll give you Christianity has some good points, some nice lessons, but can't we just take the nice lessons, the nice teachings, and then forget about the doctrine? Why can't we just sort of take the parts we like and ignore the sticky parts? And he kind of, he, he gets a sort of roundabout way to answer this. But he says to him, the reason he believes Christianity is that there's lots of little evidence that sort of adds up. It's not necessarily one silver bullet. It's all sorts of little things that when put together um, made him believe in Christianity. He says that's kind of true about all things we believe. And I would say that's kind of true. It's very rare that there's just one point that hooks you. It's this kind of innate sense of all these things lining up why we believe something. But, but first he deals with a few objections to Christianity um, from sort of different areas. So the first objection he says that people often bring up is that man and beasts are very alike. And so I would say this is definitely from the kind of evolution strain that man and beasts became from the same ancestors and we're really, you know, our genome's 96% the same, we're really not that different. And he's saying, you know, 
actually the more amazing thing is how different we are from beasts so let's take apes which are you know supposedly very related to humans apes have hands okay you know you look at an ape you see its hands you're like wow that looks pretty similar to mine but apes do totally different things with their hands than we do <laughs> apes do not use their hands in as complex and interesting ways as we do apes don't play the violin apes can't code apes can't paint art just because we look at the hands and say oh those are kind of similar the differences are maybe even more amazing between the way we use our hands and the ways apes use their hands the second objection that that often comes up he says is that religions they kind of rose up out of ignorance people didn't understand how farming worked or how the stars moved or or whatever so they just sort of invented these gods and and now we're much more learned we're much we understand how the world works and so we don't really need religions anymore that's kind of an objection he has a pretty simple dismissal of that and he says we know very little about prehistory by definition <laughs> so prehistory is the the time before uh writing we call that prehistory so by definition there is no writing about prehistory so we know very little about it so to say that religions rose up out of ignorance in prehistory is a ridiculous statement because we just don't have really any information about prehistory in in many regards Ob the the last objection that he talks about here is that priests or you could maybe say the religious class or whatever make the world a very gloomy place i think we've all heard that that the the pastors the priests they're just killjoys people are trying to have fun and the pastors are just out there or the priests are just out there uh, trying to hit on everyone's joy there's some quote I, I wish i could remember who said it uh who says a puritan is someone who fears that someone somewhere is having fun this idea that puritans and priests they're anti-fun and again he has a pretty funny uh response to this too he says actually if you look at catholic countries who are known for their priests obviously they eat a lot they drink a lot they dance a lot and they have a lot of fun and so to say that priests have made the world a gloomy place if you look at the places with the most priests they actually seem to have a lot of fun so i don't i'm certainly not endorsing uh the catholic priests here i'm not certainly endorsing their uh this lifestyle or anything it, it's just kind of a funny point that uh there's this dissonance between what people are arguing and and what is is actually true and and this is something that he'll talk about kind of too at the end that for anyone you really need to go to the source and see if things are true don't think take things secondhand especially from someone who doesn't believe it um yeah that that it's very easy to latch on to sort of stereotypes or or, or truisms or whatever that are passed down but it, it's really important to to go to the source and see what's going on so the one, one of the final things that he talks about again this is all sort of related to why can't we just take the parts of christianity we like and toss the other parts he talks about christ and he and the image that's often painted of christ is you know we see a painting where he has a lamb on his shoulder we see him saying i'm gentle and lowly in heart which he is we see him you know being kind to children and, and poor people and sick people and you can kind of get this image of christ as some sort of soft-spoken well put together kind of fluffy lightweight guy and he's like christ is anything but that and 
I, I collected a few quotes here. This, this is just four, four Bible verses that kind of go against this. The, the first is John 8, for, uh, John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Next is John 2, 15, 17, as he drives out the temple. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In Matthew 21, 18 through 19, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree in the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Lastly, Matthew 18, 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So, we can't read these and think that Christ is some sort of soft, pushy teddy bear. And and I actually think th- this is something I thought about. I've thought about even before our reading this in Chesterton. That I think this is perhaps a small weakness in the evangelical church. Um, that there can be sometimes I think an overemphasis on on Christ's humanity and Christ's kindness, uh, which are true and, and important, but that we can miss that. Jesus is kind of boss in a lot of these things. I mean, we read Revelation and the description of who Jesus is is just incredible. And I think that maybe even uh, a side effect of this is the the side of Christ that's often missed, this kind of intense and he yells at people, calls them the devil, he, he drives out money changers. This side of Jesus, I think, appeals to men more. And I think if we discussed it more, it might attract more men. The The side of Christ that's often talked about the most is tenderness. I think that in general appeals more to women. Uh, not, not saying always, but in general. And I think we're kind of missing something if we don't sort of take all of who Jesus is. And I think especially the men might be less interested in Jesus if they don't see this side. So again, I think that's one of the really cool things about Christ is that he, you can't really pin him down. Just when you think you know what he's like, he'll do something like drive out money changers or, or have really strong words towards people. So he's always kind of confounding people. He's always, um, yeah, he's hard to pin down, which I think is what makes him such an amazing savior. So last thing, he kind of just gives maybe sort of a final argument on, um, to the reader, basically, on how to think about these things. So like I said, he says, you know, go to the source to see if things are true. Don't take it secondhand. Um, and especially don't take things secondhand from someone who doesn't believe it. Um, you know, it wouldn't make sense to learn about the Red Sox history from a Yankees fan, right? And and he says, you know, there's actually a lot of evidence for Supernatural. There's lots of testimony for the supernatural. The only reason you wouldn't end up believing this is that you just had a doctrine against miracles. That there's a sense every single person on earth has doctrines, has creeds about their life, about how they live, about the world. So we we need to be aware of that and and not kind of pretend like, oh, the religious people, they have their creeds and I just am free or whatever. That's really just not true. 
and kind of closing off, he closing up why he says you can't just take the parts of Christianity you like and get rid of the parts you don't. He says Christianity tells the truth, and Christianity is alive, and in a sense, it's a truth-telling thing. That you, when you're dealing with Christianity, it, it's an alive, it's alive, uh, <laughs> in a sense, it is. Um, it's not just sort of a dead set of doctrines um, or some old, some old wisdom, but it, it's just a live truth telling thing. And I, I really like the way that he, he ends. So he talks about joy at the end and he, he says the, the kind of the final beauty that he highlights in Christianity is that, that the base of Christianity is joy and that sadness is temporary and sadness is a passing thing so this is again he says in contrary to the to the modern so let me just read this quote the mass of men have been forced to be gay about the little things but sad about the big ones nevertheless i offer my last dogma defiantly it is not native to be man to be so man is more himself man is more manlike when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief the superficial Melancholy should be an innocent interlude, a tender and figurative frame of mind. Praise should be the permanent pulsation of the soul. Pessimism is at best an emotional half-holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor from which all things live. Yet, according to the apparent estate of man as seen by the pagan or the agnostic, this primary need of human nature can never be fulfilled. Joy ought to be expansive, but for the agnostic it must be contracted. It must cling to one corner of the world. Grief ought to be a concentration, but for the agnostic, its desolation is spread through an unthinkable eternity. This is what I call being born upside down. I just love that line where he says, you know, pessimism is at best an emotional half-holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor by which all things live. And and that, that's true. As Christians, we joy is our base for the joy set before him. Jesus went to the cross at, at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore, that we believe that that joy is is the ultimate um, kind of basis of our faith. That we believe any suffering that we feel, um, Paul says, I for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Even though there is real suffering, there is real sadness on this earth. That the joy that is waiting is is beyond all comparison. And and so this is just kind of his final argument for why Christianity. So that's kind of it. That's the that's the whole book. Uh, just a few kind of I think main takeaways that I'll I'll have from this book. Uh, first, he I think one of the reasons this is still so popular is uh, it's a very prescient book, and the, the the issues he anticipated with liberal theology and liberal sort of doctrines and just liberals and progressivism in general. The the, idea, the issues he anticipated have totally come to bear. Um, he, he exploits so many um, holes and issues and the hypocrisy sort of a liberal and modern thought. And, and he highlights basically the, the ridiculous conclusions that they would reach if they really kind of took them to, to fulfillment. So that, that's definitely one big takeaway I'll have. Another one is he's, he's very ecumenical. He's very um, uh, not forgiving, but he's, he's eager to team up with the Catholics or the Orthodox or the, you know, you know, whoever. So he, he has a very positive view of other denominations. He has a very positive view of church history, um, which I think, 
I don't know, you know, make of that what you will, but it was kind of nice. I, uh, I noticed that, um, maybe he, maybe if he really looked into it, he would, you know, he's sacrificing some doctrines to be able to, um, be so unified with some other groups. But in general, that was definitely a big takeaway. And, and lastly, he is just so witty and so pithy. He has so many amazing one-liners. He has so many times he just like turns a phrase on its head. I mean, I think I think about, he says the, um, the artist just wants to get his head in the heavens. The mathematician wants to get the heavens in his head. Um, th- that, that one stands out to me that there's all these really kind of pithy one-liners he has. So I really enjoyed the book. It's, it's a very pleasurable read. It's an enjoyable read. Uh, he's funny. It feels very relevant to today. So highly recommend it. I'm uh, very glad that I did. So now that we're done with orthodoxy, it means it's time to choose the next book. And for, uh, I guess, the first time, I think this is kind of exciting. I wanted to know what you guys, the listeners, would be interested in. So I'm going to add a poll to the uh, channel and allow everyone to vote on what would be the next book that you'd want us to do. So there's four I'm considering right now. The first is The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So you'll remember we read Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, And so The Cost of Discipleship is probably his more famous. He's kind of uh, expounding on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this was written in the 20th century. The second that I'm considering is very old. It's actually Dante's Divine Comedy. So, you know, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. One of the most famous pieces of literature of all time. Uh, I think it'd be really fascinating to read. Um, So that would be the second choice, Dante's Divine Comedy. The third is Paradise Lost by John Milton. This is the 17th century. Uh, So Dante, he was writing in the 14th century. Paradise Lost by John Milton. This was written in the 17th century. Um, This is kind of a take on on the fall of man, which I think would be very interesting. I think Shane uh, has read this pretty recently, so maybe he'll be able to, to come back for that. And lastly, another really old one uh, that I'm considering is Summa Theologica by Thomas Aquinas. This was written in the 13th century, so that is so long ago, 800 years ago. Um, But this is really, you know, if we talk about Augustine as having a huge influence on the West, Thomas Aquinas has had a massive influence on the West and Western thought. Uh, I think that would actually be an interesting period. It's it's a similar idea. It's Summa Theologica, so like all of theology. Um, I think that would be an interesting comparison with, with City of God, but... So check out the polls, please uh, select which book you'd be most interested in, and then uh, that will be the next book that we discuss. I'm also going to add a a poll on um, kind of the preference for how the format works. So I noticed that the uh, Life Together podcast uh, that I recorded has been one of the most popular episodes that I've recorded. Um, And so I don't know if that's because it's a more modern book. I don't know if that's because people know Bonhoeffer. Or I don't know if it's because it was one episode to get the entire book. So I'm just trying to get a sense of, of what people like, what they enjoy, to make this as, as rewarding for you, the listeners, and for me. Um, so yeah, please fill out that poll too on the number of episodes you like per book. So that's all I have today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'm really excited to see what book we'll read next. Bye.